And I can tell you for one thing, if you told everybody in the world they have one country where they can put all their money for the rest of time, it's all coming to America. And number two, if we opened our borders and you asked every immigrant in this world, where would you truly love to live if you had the choice, they would all be coming to America. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers and I wanna thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Fort Capital is a real estate investment firm based in Fort Worth, Texas, with a track record of transacting more than $1.6 billion in assets throughout Texas, Tennessee, and Florida. The team over at Fort is currently looking to acquire Class B industrial deals between $15 and $100 million throughout Texas, Florida, Tennessee, and now North Carolina and South Carolina. To learn more about Fort Capital, visit www.fortcapitallp.com. For anyone that tried buying a car over the last couple of years, it was not an easy thing to do. I just got a car uh, and had one of the best experiences I've ever had with Frank Kent Cadillac here in Fort Worth, Texas. When you think of Fort Worth businesses, it's hard to not think of Frank Kent Cadillac. Well, that's because they've been around for 87 years And with history like that, they know a thing or two about how to treat their clients, like no dealer markups over MSRP. The price on the sticker is the price you pay. So when you're in the market for a new vehicle, check them out. New inventory is arriving daily from the XT4, 5 and 6 to the CT4 and 5 Black Wings with CPO rates. There is always something in store at fkcadillac.com. That's fkcadillac.com. Frank Kent Cadillac, community-driven, locally different since 1935. All right, here we go. Ryan, welcome to the show, my man. Chris, thanks for having me. Great to be here. I met Ryan uh, about a year ago because he's building a business that solved a problem that I had. But before we kind of get into that business and what you're solving, let's just kind of open it up with kind of who you are, your story, and what brought you into the tech world. Yeah. Hey, everyone. I'm Ryan Eisman, originally from Houston, Texas, live in New York City now, building Arch, which we can talk about a little bit later. Kind of first big exposure to tech was I spent a summer in Tel Aviv, kind of at this intersection of tech and business in 2013. And while I was there, I had a lot of exposure to the Israeli entrepreneurship scene, which is kind of second only to the US and Silicon Valley saw a lot of companies that were growing, growing quickly, expanding to the US, out of school, joined a consulting firm, but about a year in, left for a tech company that was trying to scale into the US. Saw a lot of things that worked really well there, saw some things that didn't work as well, but kind of through these different experiences, just saw a lot of the impact that tech can have on people's lives, on workflows, on the progress that we're able to make as people, as individuals, as communities. And it seemed like the best way to improve lives and have leverage. I love it. When you say it's second to the US, what do you mean by that as it relates to Israel? That's interesting. I think in, in maybe number three, I'm, I'm not kind of up on my facts, but 
in terms of the number of companies that are started, that are going public, joining the NASDAQ, innovating in different business models, innovating different industries. Israel has a, a really strong entrepreneurship scene. And one of the interesting things there is it's extremely unhierarchical. So you can come in as a 20-year-old intern and have a big impact or come in as like a young employee and work directly with a CEO who's trying to scale a business. And so you don't have the layers that you need to often work through when you join a large Fortune 500 company out of school. They're very good at finding talent, empowering talent, and getting to answers quickly. That's interesting. I didn't know we'd talk about this, but is that a cultural thing? Like what, why is that in Israel? Is that how the, kind of their culture works or it's just... Yeah, what what breeds that? Yeah, to tie this just briefly to a little bit more of my background, went to Vanderbilt University and studied human and organizational development there. A lot of jargon and words, but what it really is is psychology of business. One of our courses we talked about, and I forget the technical word for it, but essentially I think it's like the power distance. So it's how much power there is between the number one person and the, the number 500 person in an organization and they have one of the lowest power distances of any country, meaning that if you are a first year analyst at a bank there or a young person at a tech company there, you're actually expected to speak up and to call out leaders when things aren't right. And that's just a, a big part of that culture, which I think has led to a lot of innovation. Interesting, so I think the answer to this is yes, but I would assume the less power distance there is, the better a company is, or is it purely dependent on the company? I would, I would guess that overall, the better a company is. I think it's probably like any good dictatorship. If it's a, a really good dictator, you can have a great country, but there's a lot of really bad dictators. So democracies are great because they allow more people to have a voice and, and better governance. I think it's probably the same for power distance. If you have a, a benevolent leader who is really strong and, and has great vision, that company may outperform. And maybe you look at like an Apple as a good example of that. But the more that you can empower employees, I'd say across the board, the better off a company will be because people are empowered to make good decisions, to work autonomously, and to bring good ideas throughout the organization. I love it. I have not heard that power distance thing before, but it makes a lot of sense. All right. So you kind of, you went to Israel, you came back, you worked in tech. Let's talk about what you're doing today and, and maybe how the idea or maybe the story of how you left whatever you were doing to kind of take this leap and 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 start something new. Yeah, so this is mid-2017. I grew up in a house with my dad as an investment advisor, so saw a lot of the financial services world as really appealing and kind of had grew up with the Wall Street Journal just in and around what we were doing. And so kind of this theme of like investing was always interesting alongside this theme of entrepreneurship and went to a dinner, met an investor there who had started two companies, sold one of the companies to Facebook. He was doing a lot of LP investing, doing a lot of direct investing and was talking to him about this like early idea of, I think there's a lot of infrastructure missing on the private markets. And it seems like a lot of investors, advisors, accountants, attorneys are struggling with the lack of standardization and lack of infrastructure. And through conversation with him, his, his eyes lit up and he was like, yes, this is a huge pain point for me. And can you help me collect my K-1s? And I was like, sure, know only a little bit about K-1s, but it seems like something that we could probably do. Let's understand this a little bit more. 
And he essentially walked us through his process, which was, I have 100 plus K1s. They come from all these different places. Uh, they need to get to my accountant. Some of them come to me. Some of them come to my advisor. Some of them, I don't even know how to get them. And it's painful universally for all of us at the end of the year. And this is the biggest pain point I have. And if you could solve this for me, I would love to help you build this business. And so helping us build this business ended up, he introduced me to my two co-founders, Jason and Joel. We're both MIT software engineers. He became one of our first clients. So we had two design clients at the beginning of Arch. Arch is the name of our company. And then he, as it works out, runs a venture fund. It was, was kind of getting like a venture fund off the ground at that time. And they were the first check into our company. And we were one of their first investments. And so kind of sometimes you go to one dinner and it changes everything. So this is one good example of that. Yeah, I was going to say let lesson one, go to dinner, show up. Yeah. Yeah. Lean into serendipity. Le- lean into serendipity. So you had that dinner and, and we'll go in, into what's going on at the business, but were you already looking to start something? Like, were you kind of looking for an idea? Were you an entrepreneur that looking for an idea or did you already kind of know what you wanted to do? Or were you just waiting to hear like something? Because this seems like a typical story of like an entrepreneur that was waiting for an idea. But how was it for you? Yeah, I've always been really interested in the intersection of like where the world is and where it should be. And I've been keeping a list of ideas since 2013 of, things that I think are broken that should be fixed or ways to solve problems. Actually, I, like I've been doing this since earlier. I think I invented like a combination fork spoon knife in kindergarten for like an innovation contest. Terrible, terrible idea, but always was interested in this vein of like creation and creating things and entrepreneurship. And this idea of a solution for investment management and a solution for private market investments in particular is something that I'd kind of gone written a few times in this list and continued to expand on the idea of what this could be. And so in some ways it was like an idea that was brewing and then was looking for that catalyst of the person who could help us take it to the next level. So when you left that dinner, how long from leaving that dinner to we're going to do this like the next day, a couple of weeks, did you sleep on it? What happened? Yeah, it was it was a many months process. So started meeting this guy every couple of weeks for coffee. He brought in some different people that he invested with and built companies with. We talked through this idea and some others in parallel. He introduced me to Jason and Joel. We then started for three months more formally vetting this idea amongst a couple others as well with this idea of before we raise capital and take on the burden of investors and investor expectations before we quit our jobs or focus full-time on what we're doing, let's make sure that this has legs. So we talked to a few hundred investors, advisors, accountants, others, trying to figure out, one, like, is there something here? And if there is a there there, what? how do you start? Is it with collecting K-1s? Is it with investor portals? Is it with other things? And just trying to figure out, like, the minimum viable product of sorts. And then, of course, there's all the other things, like, what's in your name, what is your name, you need a name before you incorporate, all those kind of things you need to do before you start a business. But we've, we've added this idea over kind of three more formal months. And out of jealousy, I just have to tell listeners that I'm very jealous because I have a probably a smaller list, but at the top of the list, it was this idea or something similar to it. And it was solving my own pain points, which I think are huge. If anybody on this podcast listen or 
collects K1s, you you kind of understand. For me, it was like a Google sheet that I used to kind of keep track and then the burden to go get them. And so my idea was to start a service that would help this process. I went out on Twitter. I said, is anybody doing this? And that is how you and I met. I think somebody commented you and we ended up talking. So let's kind of move into what you're building and like what you're solving. I mean, you've kind of let it, you know, you've given us the story of how it started, but but where are you today with the product? Yeah, absolutely. So when we started, all we started with was let's collect K1s for investors with this idea of there's all these different investment portals or investment managers that send information via email or posted to their site. The investor needs access to that information. The advisor and the accountant needs access to that information. So let's create something that's scalable, cloud-based, allows everyone to access the information they need with an initial focus on tax documents. What we've built that through into over the last four and a half years is a kind of full platform for holistically managing alternative investments, meaning that with Arch, you can see all of your investments in one place. You can see every commitment you've made, what it's currently worth, metrics on some basic performance items there, cash flows, and have all your documents stored. We also standardize this data for use within other systems in the industry. So if you're running an Adapar or Black Diamond, Orion, Mastro, different kinds of accounting systems as well, we can push this data into those systems or into a format that's ingestible by other systems. And then the, you can add accountants, other members of your team to pull K1s to see the capital calls that are, that are coming due. And we wrap this all in customized notifications per person. And Chris, as a user, anything that I, that I missed no, it's pretty spot on. They, I mean, yes, I get a weekly or a daily, I guess I get a daily email of everything that came in the day before, which are for 40 something third party investments that I'm in are capital calls, K1 distributions, announcements, quarterly letters, things I should know. You know, most people just that that's hundreds of pieces of email a year that are not organized. They're just stuffed in an email somewhere. And it has thoroughly helped my life. I guess my question to you is, the next one is, is it mostly individuals? Because there is a large, what, for me, it was understanding that there was a, everybody I asked that was like me or in a similar position investing wise, if you asked any of them, some of the most sophisticated people on the planet, how do you manage this stuff? They're like, with duct tape and a Google sheet. I mean, that's like the answer. So are you just doing this for individuals? Are you doing this for family offices? Like who, who are the, the customers? So we serve individuals, family offices, RAAs, multifamily offices, banks, institutions like endowments, foundations, pension funds, fund of funds. It's actually quite surprising that there's a huge overlap in the problems that endowments and foundations that manage billions of dollars have with family offices and individuals. And so what we're building is universally applicable to anyone with dozens, hundreds, or thousands of private investments. Okay. So you raised five and a half million dollars last year. Before we get into what you're going to do with that money, I think this is something to maybe pivot the conversation just a second on just like the capital raising BC world. What was that like raising in, in 2021? And, you know, what happened? Why did you raise all this money? Yeah. So when we went out to raise, we actually only thought we needed to raise two million dollars in order to get to the next stage of our company. We then met some of the investors over at Craft Ventures who started using our platform in the diligence process. They liked the experience. They had these problems as clients and they liked what we were building. 
And so then they convinced us to instead raise $5 million and take them on as our lead investor, which we are extremely happy that we did for a number of reasons. One, they've been incredible investors to work with. Jeff Fleur, who we work most closely with, founded StubHub. David Sachs was the CEO of PayPal. He's also a competitive podcaster with you in the All In podcast. And Ara has been an amazing part of the story as well. When we started working with her, she was a senior associate, then was promoted to principal and now is a full GP. And so kind of someone to watch in the industry. Another reason why we're happy that we raised $5 million is not immediately after, but over the last 12 months, the investing market has become much harder. Uh, So it's great to be able to sit and grow your company without having to think about going back out and raising capital to be able to assure your customers and your partners that you're going to be here for the long run uh, and that you're building the company conservatively so that you aren't at the whim of financial market swings. David, if you're listening to this, I'm a huge fan. I'm happy to come on the All in One podcast. And I love that you're running Twitter right now with Elon, even though you might not say that you are. But anyway, back to the podcast. What you said, like working with these investors is great. What about working with them is great? Is it that they have a playbook for how to grow? They have relationships? Like, what do you lean on these VCs for? A little bit of everything. So I think when you look at for investors, it's figuring out who's aligned with you culturally and can help you get to the next phase or phases of the business. So what we found here is they're extraordinarily well-connected to different institutions that we should be partnering with, people that can be customers. They have playbooks for raising and growing and properly managing teams and have resources for different areas, even like regulation and compliance and how to deal with that area of the world. And then they're fully aligned with what we want to build and and our good patient long-term capital. They don't expect to make a quick buck in a year. They're in this for, let's see what we can build together over the next 10 years or so. And we think this can be that kind of long-term generational business. You said that you were glad you raised 5 million for lots of reasons. One of them being that it would be a, it's good right now, given the capital raising environment. But at the time when it wasn't, why did they convince you to raise five instead of two? What was the reasoning then? I think part of this is when you're working with an investor like a craft or any kind of like tier one venture investor or, or other venture investor that has a mandate, you want them to feel like they have enough skin in the game to be involved. And if they're writing a $200,000 check, they probably wouldn't be that interested in participating in the company to the extent that we'd want them to be part of it. And we decided that ultimately, and every decision we make as entrepreneurs, we're hoping to, to do this, which is make the company more valuable with each incremental decision. So we realized that the company was more valuable with Kraft on the cap table and their leadership behind us and them as close partners. And even though we had to dilute ourselves a little bit more as founders, that taking on that dilution led to a more valuable business and ultimately would allow us to build and scale more effectively. And when you're going out and raising that money, I know your first investor had his own fund and was kind of plugged into the VC world, but how do you kind of break in and like start getting your deal around and, and setting these meetings? Is it, is it pretty easy to set meetings with VCs or is it tough or do you have to be kind of shepherded through or know somebody? Like, how do you make your way to a tier one VC and get in front of them? Yeah, kind of like all industries, there is a certain level of jargon and trying to understand how things work and how things operate. 
So we look to our peers who are a stage ahead of us to learn how to do this. And what we realize is, one, we need to figure out what our story is and make sure that what we're trying to build and what we're trying to do is easily communicable because people have short attention spans in everything. So we need to give them enough in an email that they'll take a meeting, give them enough in a meeting that they'll take another one and be able to show enough traction or enough of whatever we're trying to prove that they wanna be involved in this as a story. And so working with peers, using peers to get introductions to the right folks was extremely important and extremely helpful for us. And it's something that we love helping others with as well. And to get into the extent you can share, I know some of this might be private, but like how long did it take to convince Kraft to invest in you? And I'm assuming once somebody like that takes the lead, it's easier to fill in the rest of the round based on who your horse is. Like how long was that process mainly with Kraft and then just to fill out the round total? Yeah. Well, we were about 95% subscribed for a round when we met Kraft. So that was part of also the reason why they convinced us to raise more because there wasn't any room left. I think we went from initial call to term sheet in under three weeks with them. They moved really quickly. We provided diligence and resources quickly. So I think when there's a relationship that you want, whether it's an investor or uh, an employee, speed really matters. And it's like how you do one thing is how you do everything. So speed of execution in every place matters. And then once we had them on the cap table, our round at that point was fully subscribed, but then we were able to go out and say, okay, who are the couple investors or couple angels or other funds that we most want to have at this stage as additional advisors, as additional investors. And so then they were able to introduce us to some people and our network also was able to introduce us to some others who came in who have been extremely helpful along the way as well. Man, I love it. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. And that might be my biggest piece of advice for people constructing a round is I think like one strong strategic investor who can be like the one most closely in the trenches with you. And then as many small checks of people with expertise in a certain area. So if you need a marketing person or you need a banker, you need someone else, you have that person you can call on who has expertise in that area and who can help you see around corners. If you're like me, you like to wake up and get your daily dose of reading. Uh, For me, a lot of that has to do with commercial real estate because of the industry that we're in at Fort Capital. And the news is important, but if you're a busy real estate professional like me, you don't have time to skim through the dozens of dry and ad-filled media outlets each day. That's why I read CRE Daily, a free email newsletter that cuts through the clutter and delivers concise, witty commentary on the latest trends and transactions in commercial real estate. I discovered CRE Daily a few months ago, and it's an email I actually look forward to getting each morning. If you're a real estate professional, you owe it to yourself to try it out and stay on top of what's happening in the industry in only five minutes. To give their free daily newsletter a try, visit CREdaily.com. That's CREdaily.com. How often do you talk to your investors? Every day, every week, every month? Comes and goes? Yeah, we do a quarterly board meeting. We'll do ad hoc meetings when there's big things to discuss. And then probably ping them every two weeks with a question or something along the way. Okay, back to, so you raised the round and you kind of said twice to get us to like the next stage of the business in a financial services business, kind of like what you're building. What is the next stage? Is it a certain amount of regulation, a certain amount of customers? Like what does that next level of business look like for you in this business? Yeah. So when we raised the round, we just brought on our first RAA client. 
And so that was a big part of the story that we wanted to unlock is like, can we serve investment advisors at scale and bring on people with hundreds or thousands of investments? That's something that we've now accomplished. And now our probably median client is an investment advisor with 800 to 1,000 alternative investments that they're managing on behalf of their clients. We have clients with 10,000 or more uh, and clients with 12 investments, but kind of that's where we're starting to spend a lot of time on the enterprise side or on the, the business side is with that kind of advisor. So that was one element. And then just building like bigger teams to onboard clients, manage clients, build product. There's a lot that we have planned in the future to extend our product to to build a lot more of the core infrastructure that's needed to manage an alternative investment. And so kind of thinking with that lens of how to continually be innovative and build a machine for innovation and serving customers well at scale. I love it, man. One of the things you put in our notes was that you were the sole salesperson until you hit a million in revenue. Was that a certain target and you knew you were going to hand it off or can you expand a little bit more on like what you meant by that? Yeah, th this was one part intentional and one part accidental. So first two and a half years of the business was really just trying to understand what product market fit was in this industry and how to build a product that was repeatedly sellable to the people that we want to work with. That unlock came for us in June of 2020. Once we unlocked that ability to repeatedly sell the product, I still wanted to own that process at the beginning, just so we were making sure that we were continually improving the product from all the feedback we we're getting from our customers and prospective customers and just kind of running as tight of an organization as possible. And kind of our growth story has been also being conservative in growth so that we can allocate capital efficiently. I think when we started to get around the six, 700K in ARR level, that's when I realized that we should start to bring on a salesperson. But given the types of customers that we're selling to, we wanted to bring on the right person and be extremely thoughtful in that decision. And so it took us a little bit longer than we would have liked to find that first person. But when we did, it's been an amazing choice. And she's been a great part of our team and has kind of built the foundation to be able to bring on more people into that sales org. And probably once we got to 850 or 900K in ARR, then at that point, it's like, well, we might as well get to a million before we bring on the first person. So yeah, some of that was... I love it. I can tell you've learned a lot about building a business, I'd say from four and a half years ago, kind of to where you are today, like what's your job like today versus, you know, where it's been and how do you continue to think about as the company goes from this small thing with a few employees to larger, like how, how you're going to continue to kind of elevate yourself and, and how, and how do you continue to elevate yourself? I think this is something that a lot of listeners think about often is like, when is it time to grow up a little more and delegate or, you know, continue to rise to the occasion? Like, how do you think about that? Probably the most important things I can do are empower members of our team to make decisions, train them on the things that we know that we think are important about our company and our market and our decision-making frameworks, and then recruit other great people to the team. Uh, so that's what I'm trying to do a lot more of is spend more time recruiting great sellers and do less of the direct sales work myself, spend more time with the team, making sure that we're all rowing the same direction and that people feel empowered to know what kind of decisions we should be making so that they can make decisions autonomously 
and we don't have to micromanage any of the things that are most of the things that are coming through the company. Part of this episode, we decided that we'd flip the mic a little bit and go back and forth. Ryan and I have some good discussions and he had some questions for me that I think are really relevant to the audience. And so, Ryan, if you want to fire away and we can kind of go back and forth, would love to hear what you have to ask and see if I have a good answer for him. Sweet. Thanks, Chris. Well, you mentioned both on this call and when we first spoke that you had extensive notebooks around ideas in this space and would love your thoughts on like what's broken and what you were hoping to build or what you were thinking or what was keeping you up at night around kind of the, the broader family office and investment management world. Well, I think at the at the I think there is a large segment, there is a group of people in this country. Well, let me I'll take even one step back. Just because you have made some money doesn't mean A, you know how to manage it, or B, that you're necessarily going to have the tools to participate in things that the uber wealthy people of the world get to participate in. But when you look at like an average family office, a lot of the overhead to me, you know, it's people, it's software, it's things of that nature. But unless you're super wealthy, you can't really afford a family office. Some people don't want a family office because they just don't want to manage all these people and do all these things. But you asked me about my vision is like, I still think that collectively there should be products that allow people to have the same access and the same things that a big family office has if you're able to like pool capital or pool resources together. And, you know, and, and I could go through a laundry list. I think people think of family offices as just groups that like help you make investments. But the truth is family offices help you with lots of things. They help you with your setup tax returns. They help you collect information that you need. They help give you data. But some offices also help you if you fly privately. They'll, they will help you either, you know, buy your aircraft, lease an aircraft, book you hours on net jets. They'll help you give away money to charity. So they might have their own foundations or they'll work to help you, especially in multifamily offices, send your money elsewhere. They have access to the best tax strategies and, and updates that are going on in Washington and how it could affect their capital. They also kind of hunt in a pack. Family offices work together. So you'll typically see deals get done where lots of the same family offices are in them. They all share information and there's kind of this ecosystem. And so then there's just this layer right below the family office of all these people that have accumulated wealth, but don't have the resources and or don't want to start the family office. And so if I'm going out to like the furthest vision and then working backwards was how do you create this like multifamily office type of structure that thousands of people can join and participate in the benefits of what they would have if they were part of a smaller family office. So I mean, at the most basic level, like getting K-1s in on time, like I promise you the wealthiest families in the world are not worried about getting their K-1s in on time, but somebody at the family office is. But they're not thinking, oh man, I got to get this. I got to make sure my quarterly reports show up on time. I got to make sure all my, you know, if you're in 40 different deals, like you said, and you're getting distributions from each of them, like how do you know that every distribution came in? Are you going to spend like one day a month checking your bank account going, Oh, 39 came in, but I'm missing the 40th. Like you talk to most people and you're like, hey, did you get all your distributions this month? They're like, I have no freaking clue. And God forbid you were getting checks from them and you like moved your office 
And now like checks haven't been arriving for six months and you completely forgot about that check. There's just a lot of things that happen when you have started allocating capital and you're managing life. If you might have a second home, you might have, you know, a second home with cars that need insurance regularly and property insurance regularly. You might have tons of bill pay that you need paid. And the wealthier you get in what tends to happen to people is their life becomes more complicated administratively. They get in more deals, they buy more toys, they travel more, their kids are in schools. I mean, all these things happen, but nobody really gets this like family office to go with it. So you either spend half your days kind of administrating your life or you hire someone. So that's a long way to answer a question of what did I think was possible is bringing a family office suite of services to maybe the person that's worth you know x amount of millions or whatever they could be worth a billion i don't care that don't want a family office but want all the services of a family office so maybe we can start there and then i'll stop yeah that's great and one thing you articulated i think it was the biggie smalls that said mo money mo problems <laughs> that might be the title of this episode <laughs> and if you say, say you had a liquidity event, you sell a plumbing business or a technology business, or you win the billion or $2 billion Powerball, what is, and what should your first step be? That's a great question. I think what most people do is they, they go start interviewing wealth management firms, or usually what happens is, you know, you're going to sell like a year out. And so either maybe for a couple of years before you've already started talking to people, You've started talking to attorneys. I remember we had a sell once and before we sold, a lot of people gave me some advice like, you got to go to your local law firm and set up a few things. I would have just never known to do that. And so maybe lesson one is if you're going to have a big liquidity event, you're usually starting to plan for that. But what I would tell you, and I'm, and I'm shocked with time after time, is again, just because you built an amazing business that could be worth hundreds, you know, tens, hundreds, a billion dollars, a lot of those entrepreneurs have been so deep into building that business. It's not like they've thought about how am I going to manage a billion dollars? They know how to make it. Managing it is a totally different set of skills and all the challenges and complexities that come with that. And so step one would be if you know you're going to have a liquidity event, start preparing but then after the liquidity comes in, hopefully you've had a plan. If you haven't, the best plan I've ever heard is do nothing. Leave it in your account, do nothing, and then start talking to different people and start developing a plan. I think a lot of people get it and start you know, buying stuff and investing and going crazy. The best advice I've ever been given or been told is at least have a plan for what you're going to do. And if you don't have a plan, there's no harm in just kind of chilling out and sitting still. If you're going to have a big sum of money, go to a JP Morgan, maybe a big bank, like they'll have the very basics of what you can do with money in the interim while you kind of set a plan forward. So I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, that's great. And let's talk about advisors for a second, and then maybe we'll talk about asset managers. What separates a good advisor from a bad advisor or a great advisor from a mediocre advisor, in your opinion? I think a lot of it is the relationship that you have with the advisor. Because at the end of the day, there's only so many, there's not a lot of tricks. And when you're managing wealth, a lot of it is you've made it, you don't want to lose it. So it's not like you're making it and then you're 
trying to get into all these super crazy deals to like quadruple your wealth again. A lot of times at that point, it's like, yeah, I still want to take some swings, but I just don't want to, you know, I don't want to lose it. And so at the don't lose it part of the game, if that's still your game, like there's not a ton of variability in, in what you can do. And so there it's like, what's their reputation? How long have they been in the business? And honestly, do you really like them? Because I think this person becomes a big part of your life over time. If you have an advisor, certainly if you have a family office, if you were to truly have one, that becomes its own. While it's a business, it still becomes like another family for the family. I mean, they become very ingrained with these people. They're given a lot of trust. The people of those family offices know a lot of details, not just financial details, but they know a lot about the family and how they work and you know, which kids are doing what and which kids aren't. And so it's got to be someone you trust and that you like, you know, fees are fees. Ask everybody, like, what are your fees? And then ask them after that, okay, those are your fees. What are the hidden fees? I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but a lot of times what's on the surface isn't the total package. And then, you know, to the extent you can try and talk to some of their clients, try and talk to somebody that has worked with them before that, you know, that has money at that firm, because really at that level, you're just not bouncing around. It's not like you're looking for a new advisor every year. I mean, this should be something that you hope is a lifetime deal. And so for family offices, it certainly is. But if it's not going to be a family office, you're hoping that you never have to change your wealth manager. And if you do, maybe it's just once or it's for a reason that isn't, I don't like my current manager. Maybe you came into way more wealth and you need to move to another level or something. But I don't know. I think the answer to the question is like, how great of a relationship can you have with the person? Do you understand where they're putting your money? Are they transparent? But again, like if there's anything I've learned, there's just anybody that tells you they have some like hidden secret on how to make you a lot more money is is it's probably not true. You know, Warren Buffett often says like, just go put it in a Vanguard. That's almost the safest way to make a lot of money. And so not to take anything away from advisors, because I think they do more than just invest money. They've, they help you with insurance problems. They help you with estate planning thoughts. They help you with lots of other things besides just putting money to work. But yeah, you got to get to know and like these people, trust them and make sure they have a good reputation. Cool. And then, so the client hires the advisor, the advisor hires the asset manager. You are an asset manager, your audience probably knows exactly what you do, but I may send this to some people to check out this podcast that don't know what you do. So Chris, what do you do as an asset manager? Would love to learn about the Fort companies. Yeah. So we raise private capital and we invest it directly into real estate. We're not an allocator ourselves. So Ryan, if you give me a dollar, that dollar is going directly into a real estate asset. We're currently not a fund. We syndicate deals on a deal-by-deal -deal basis. We might be a fund one day, but we raise money, deploy it into real estate, and then we operate that real estate in hopes of generating a return that we can provide to you as monthly dividend cash flow. And then maybe one day as a, as a lump sum sale where you get a multiple of your capital back. And we typically, well, all we buy is industrial real estate throughout the Sunbelt and we typically hold assets anywhere from three to seven years. That sounds pretty great. How did you get into this business? Yeah, so I started buying real estate my freshman year of college back in 2004, taking advantage of 
basically financing they would give to a freshman in college that didn't need any credit or any money or any track record. That I guess lesson one is take advantage of the opportunities that are given to you at the time because smartly the Amer you know, most lenders won't do that anymore and they probably shouldn't have with me. Eighteen years later, we have raised capital from over seven we currently have seven hundred investors manage over a billion dollars worth of industrial real estate throughout the Sun Belt. And so we raise capital directly from investors and then directly buy real estate in a deal by deal format. So we might have a $50 million deal. We're going to raise 20 of equity and get a $30 million loan. We would send out a deal memo to our investors. We would raise that $20 million as basically our down payment. And then we would buy a piece of real estate. And then it's Fort Capital's job to manage that real estate, create value, provide cash flow to our investors. And then usually we hold for three to seven years. We'll either refinance or sell that asset and distribute a lump sum of capital or 1031 that money into a new asset to save from paying taxes. Sweet. And on raising money, how did you raise your first dollar? What was that process like for you? Yeah, it was a lot of everybody here is friends and family, and that's exactly what it was. I think the first couple deals you do, you raise from people that are close to you. And so we had a development over at TCU. We needed to raise, I believe our first raise was $900,000 to build 16 townhomes around TCU that were going to be student housing. And those investors were my, my college roommate, my college roommate's dad, my best friend, my best friend's dad, my mother and my dad, and a few other people. So it was people very close to us. Now, I, what I'm proud of is a lot of those same investors are still invested with us today. Their family offices are invested with us. Their cousins and uncles are invested with us. And so I think I said this earlier, but you know, again, people that have capital or that like to invest typically know people that like to invest and have capital. And so it's a kind of a, a ripple effect. And all that to be said, you have to be making people money. So your track record speaks for itself. So as that gets better, it's easier and you know, when you make somebody a dollar, they'll very often go sing your praises and introduce you to new people along the way. And so it's just been 15 years of continuing to meet the right people at the right time. Yeah. So zero to over a billion dollars in 15 years, 700 investors. What does this look like in five years or, the, or 15 years from here? I think in five years, I believe that we will have four or five billion of AUM. We will have really deepened our relationships. I'm sorry, our markets that we're in and expanded throughout the Sun Belt. I think we will have a larger team. I think we will start raising more institutional capital and possibly get into funds rather than syndicating on a deal by deal basis. But we're going to do all of that thoughtfully. We're not going to grow just to grow. We need to have the deals in front of us that make sense. But we are primed and ready for to take the company from a billion to five billion. You know, our largest deal size we did last year was 115 million. We're looking at lots of things in the hundred to three hundred million dollar range. And so we'll also begin to probably acquire more portfolios and aggregations of buildings rather than one-off buildings as time goes by. And then who knows? We may stay private. You could turn it into a REIT. You have a lot more opportunities as you get to that three to five billion in AUM size. That's awesome. And let's talk for a moment about markets. So right now it's December 1st of 2022. Markets have changed a lot in the last 12 to 18 months in the same way that for us as a startup, 
harder for us to raise. Valuations have come down based on revenue multiples. In the real estate world, I imagine that higher interest rates lead to lower asset prices, but also harder debt. So curious what that leads to for you, what you're thinking about and how that changes your strategy in allocating capital in the future. Yeah, it's a great question. So it's a tale of two worlds right now. One, the capital markets are tough. Interest rates are going up, but we know they're going up. We, You have a Fed that's kind of giving you the step-by-step playbook. I think early on, people might not have believed it, but I think everybody now believes that Powell is going to do what he says he's going to do. And so it hasn't made things better, but I think it's starting. the markets are starting to calm down because they understand what's happening going forward. So there's that. Number two, banks are not really wanting to lend right now. They either A, they've had such good years for so many years, or they they lent a lot in the first half of the year that a lot of banks are saying, hey, let's let's just kind of watch the rest of this year play out and we'll start again next year. And then and then over a certain loan size, once you get out of conventional lenders and you get into private lenders or bonds or CMBS debt, after a certain size, call it like 50, 60 million, 100 million dollars, everything's floating rate debt. And so it's really that's a harder loan to get right now. So the larger deals are having trouble getting done. And really, there just hasn't been a lot of folks that are uh, that are in the market right now. A lot of sellers don't want to sell right now because, you know, they want to see where the market is. A lot of people have made a lot of money over the last. I mean, there's been a 12 year bull run in real estate. And so right now, just everybody has an ability to kind of not do much. You know, there are certainly people that are going to struggle through this. If you've had floating rate debt, maybe you're in your in an unfavorable asset class. We'll see. But for now, there's the capital markets that suck. I mean, I'm just not going to say it any other way. I think there's equity there. It's it's the debt piece, but there's also a lot of equity that's saying let's just wait and see what happens. And so, how long people are willing to wait, I don't know. I mean, when you have all these discretionary vehicles raised and all this funds, and you hear dry powder, that money has to get deployed sometime, or the GPs have to give it back. And if you know how capital flows, like GPs would rather put it to work than necessarily give it back. And so we'll see how long people will wait. I think the Fed has kind of signaled that there might be a couple more. I think Powell said yesterday that the next one might not be as big as people had previously thought, which is kind of a more dovish signal. But on the other side, especially as I can speak to our portfolio in Texas and certain asset classes, leases are happening, vacancies being filled, Rents are rising still. And so you have kind of this tale of two worlds. I call it the ground game. Like what's actually happening at the property is very encouraging. But then the buying and the selling of the assets right now is is struggling. And so we look at that as an opportunity to buy when others are fearful or when others can't buy. And so we're still not, we're not at full price discovery yet. We have one deal we're closing next week that makes a lot of sense. But as far as buying at the pace we had been buying. We just haven't found anything. We're going to wait for some price adjustments and we're going to wait for the capital markets to open back up. And when that really happens, I would guess towards the end of the first quarter next year, you'll start seeing some money flowing back and forth again. That's a pure speculative guess. I could be laughed out so hard come Q1 of next year, but that's kind of my guess given the latest Fed signal and really that that the Fed's job is working. I mean, things have pretty much stopped in our 
our industry, the housing industry, which I'm not in, but buy and selling of homes is it like almost stopped. Home builders are laying down. They're going to finish their inventory. I know home builders are are looking at 50% revenue cuts for next year. And so it's working. Now, do I expect them to like lower rates immediately? Absolutely not. I think they'll hold them firm. And we just have to remember this. We were operating at 0% interest or close to it for a long time. That is not normal. What is normal is kind of where we're getting back to, which is a 4 to 5% Fed funds rate. I mean, if you look over a 20, 30-year period, like that has been the average. Now, it sucks to go back that way, but I think it brings a healthy dynamic back to the market. It resets a lot of things. And of course, there will be you know some groups that get pinched, but overall for the ecosystem long-term, it's the right thing to happen. And we'll go through a little pain to get there, but I think you know, we'll be back at it in the next couple of years, next, you know, half year, year. And then in a couple of years, I think we'll be moving at full speed again. Yeah, that's, that's great. One thing you alluded to is kind of the be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. I don't know if that was Ben Graham or uh, Warren Buffett who said that or kind of recycled over the years, but kind of what in your kind of upbringing or in the lessons you've learned over time as an investor has allowed you to come to that disposition, which I think is pretty well aligned and correlated with success. Yeah. I think I stole that right out of Warren Buffett's book. So that's certainly nothing original. We hear that a lot, but I think you have to have done it for a while. So I've, and you have to, I think we live in a world now with the internet and you're able to just see a people's emotions and how quickly people can believe in something and change the next day and it really takes kind of a long-term mindset. And so for me, it really goes back to how well do you really know what you're doing? Like I know industrial in the Sun Belt probably better than 99.9999999% of the world. And so that gives you a level of confidence. So what I see is not risky. Other people might see as risky, but I'm coming at it with a lot more information than most people do. And then realizing, I mean, if there's anything that like I've learned following the internet or anything is this world gets very fearful really quick, but they're willing to get fearful over limited information at times. You know, we live in a world now with a new headline every day and people, you know, it's like whiplash. People don't know really what to believe in, but what you can't always believe in is if you just go back over time is like the markets will move, people innovate, people get better downturns don't last near as long as as up cycles do. The best investments of all time have been bought when people are scared and the VIX is high and people are kind of paralyzed. And the question you have to ask yourself, is this time different? Of thousands of years, is this going to be the time where nothing ever comes back? And, you know, I was listening to Jamie Dimon speak the other day and he just, you know, he said something that was just kind of cool. He's like, look, we bank all over the world. And I can tell you for one thing, if you told everybody in the world they have one country where they can put all their money for the rest of time, it's all coming to America. And number two, if we opened our borders and you asked every immigrant in this world, where would you truly love to live if you had the choice, they would all be coming to America. And, and that's where Warren Buffett has talked about that. But I fully believe that, that I think we live in the best country in the world, despite the issues that we have. We are still a country that is, there's nowhere else I'd rather be. And there, there's nothing, we get hard on ourselves, and then we're able to be tough on ourselves. but I think we have the best place to invest. We have rule of law. We have uh, access to capital. We have some of the smartest legal systems in the whole world. 
And it's just a, if you're thinking long-term, it's a great place to invest. And so I believe that not to be any different this time. Is it sucks sometimes to see your current assets drop in price for a period of time? Sure. But if you're not trying to get rid of them tomorrow, who cares? And so I would just go back to what history says. The best deals get done when other people are fearful and hopefully we'll have the courage to participate at that exact moment. Yeah, that's awesome. Sounds like you found good country fit for yourself personally and then founder market or investor market fit for the way that you invest and the way you're building the firm. If you couldn't build a real estate investment company and you had to do something completely different, what would that thing be? I think I already told you what I would go do. I'd come after you. I'd come after you. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be my biggest competitor. <laughs> I truly believe in what you're doing. I mean, I think I think democratizing, I, I don't know if it's the word's democratizing, but democratizing the family office suite of services to a greater group of people is is something that you could unbundle. I don't know. I'm really enjoying doing the podcast right now. I'll just say it. I don't know what I would go do. I've been the chairman of Fort for two years now. I love that business. I love participating in that business, but I do feel like I will do something else again. I don't know what that is. If somebody's out there listening and has got a great idea, I'd love to hear it. But for right now, I, I really couldn't answer that. I don't know what I would do. This is all I've ever done and I love doing it. And as time goes by, I realize I want to play in the sandbox that I know how to play in. I've built a great network. I've learned a lot of things. I want to keep leveraging whatever has gotten me here. I, I want to leverage that. I don't want to go build like spaceships or rockets and start totally fresh again. And so I wish I had a better answer for you, but I don't really know what I'll do next or if I'll do anything again. I'm sure I will, but but I don't know what that would be. I love your idea. I think it needs to get done. I uh, Actually, I'll, I'll give an answer. Now, I would probably go get into oil and gas in the energy space if I had to to actually, with a gun to my head, go start something again tomorrow in a different industry. I think we have it all wrong. We're using more oil today than we've ever used. And I think 50 years from now, we'll use even more than we use today. There is nothing that shows me that that's not going to happen. Now, sure, I want all energy to work and I want other sources to work. But we are so dependent on oil. There is so little capital in the space now. You know, somebody the other day told me, I'm in the oil and gas business. And if you tell some people that in today's day and era, you might as well tell them you own like a porn studio or something. It's crazy. I mean, people think that oil and gas is almost like a villain, yet it is the main source of energy that runs the world and makes the products like the plastics and the lubricants and all of the things that we use to function on a day-to-day -day basis. And so there's my little oil and gas rant. But if I had to leave what I'm doing today and get into another industry, I would probably jump into oil and gas. I think it's the largest opportunity right now with the least amount of capital in it. Well, hopefully someone who's listening is inspired by this, goes and becomes a wildcatter or starts a, a pipeline and loops you in and then you can <laughs> do some great things in that industry as well. And then they'll make a lot of money and then we'll use your software to manage it. And that's how the story that's how this podcast came to be. Exactly. Uh, well, thank you for letting me ask you some questions. This was a ton of fun as well. I really admire what you're building. I look forward to just continuing to become friends and stay in touch. I think you're at the you're at the the tip of the spear of what's possible. You have a very sticky product. Once you're onboarded, it's very sticky, and and y'all do a remarkable job. 
and I'm just excited. So thanks for joining me today. Maybe we'll do this again in a few years once you've hit the, the next stage that we called it. Awesome. We'd love to do it. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Talk to you soon. Everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.